Um, there's a lot of opportunity to play, it sounds like, so if you're interested in all, go out and do it. Um, as you can see, uh, RUF is, yes? I just wanted to say on that particularly, um, we didn't have enough girls this last week, so if more girls would want to come, that would be great. For soccer. And for soccer and volleyball. And volleyball. Um, and then right. you can show up 15 minutes early so we can get registered in time because uh, being late causes penalties to be good. <laughs> And we're out, we're out to win. So, yes. Okay. So if you're if you're a woman, uh, then maybe think about doing some any girls. And if you're a guy, think about it too. Okay. Uh, join a small group. It's not too late. It's never too late to join a small group. So if you're interested in doing that, come on in. Uh, the is fine. I don't know what that means. Okay. And. Uh, also, are you working on your Halloween costume yet? I mean, okay, let's just be honest. The Halloween party, okay, some Vikings might be there. We saw that, maybe. Uh, but there is a Halloween costume competition with pretty amazing prizes in the years past. So I'm, not, I'm just I'm going to put this on the table. The competition is pretty fierce. So you might want to come with the A-game costume. Uh, I mean, group costumes are welcome, so if you want to do some sort of theme, you're welcome to do that too. Uh, also, it'll just be a good time. Uh, who, can, who can wait for the amazing fake spider webs that we get to have to you? So, I'm doing that uh, next Wednesday. Okay, so let's talk about uh, what we're really doing here. It's not me getting lame announcements about things I really don't understand. Uh, let's talk about the Bible a little bit. We're in large group, we are marching through the Gospel of John, and we're looking at what are called the I Am statements. The I Am statements are where Jesus describes who He is. And he's describing who He is, with, sorry, with I Am, to a group of people that are falling around the Middle East about 2,000 years ago, and also to us who are reading these passages uh, 2,000 years later. Jesus is saying things like, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, I am the vine, I am the resurrection and the life. Um, so the working title of our study is, I am defines who I am. Okay, ready? Ready for it? Always, Coca-Cola. Ready? I am defines who I am. Right? Isn't that work? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Guys, I mean, it's a jingle. What? Better jingle? Yeah, jingle I'm trying. I mean, I Google jingles. That's the best I can do. <laughs> Someone suggested Monday Night Football. And I was like, are you kidding me? Can I come that long? That would be terrible. I mean, there's like timpani, there's like strums, cymbals. I can't handle that. Okay. I mean, I can barely carry it too. Okay. So, what we're really getting at with this title, the working title that we have this semester, is that knowing that Jesus, the I Am, changes how we understand who we are. And not only changes who we, how we understand who we are, it changes everything about us. So as we get to know Jesus, um, we are changed. We're changed for the better. And in order to know Jesus, we need to take him at his word, to listen to what he says about himself in the Bible. Uh, the Bible, by the way, is the most tested and most approved document in world history. It's just a simple fact. Okay? So uh, maybe it's a good place to look at um, if you're interested in thinking about that. So before we look again at Scripture, John chapter 10, the second part, let's recall where we've been for the series, just to kind of give us some big context. Like, I did some introductions way back when, it was a long, long time ago. We talked about uh, Jesus being, in Exodus chapter 3, 
the Lord God reveals himself to Moses and says, my name is Yahweh, which in Hebrew is best translated to English as I am. So when Jesus says I am over and over again, he's actually saying, I am God, who is like, say, a good shepherd this week. Also, we also learned that looking at John the Baptist, we learned that seeing Jesus properly, properly requires a correct heart posture. We have to confess that we are not Jesus to see, to behold, the real Jesus. So with all of those things in mind, we studied a lot of I am statements so far. We looked at I am uh, the Messiah, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world. And last week we looked at I am the door. Uh, tonight we're going to look at what Jesus means, means when he says I am the good shepherd. And my guess is that we've heard that a lot if we grew up in the church, or if we didn't, we've heard about that, and it'll be really wonderful to unpack together. So if you turn your Bibles to John chapter 10, um, 10, if you have one, if you have a nice little bulletin, you can look on the inside right. Okay. <clears throat> so let me explain what we're doing here. Uh, if you're thumbing through your Bible last third, after Luke, before Acts, uh, lots of red letters. Uh, that's what John is. You'll find it. Uh, as you're flipping there, uh, let me explain. I'm going to read the first six verses, not because we're going to re-preach that, okay? So I know some of you were like, oh, didn't I hear about that last week? Yeah, we're not going to redo that, but it's just helpful for all of us to be on the same page. Because verses 10 through 18 are explaining verses 1 through 6. So I'm going to read all of those things, but I'm really going to focus our attention on verses 10 through 18. So... All right, I think we're all there. Would you stand and read scripture? Okay. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, what man, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hears his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, for they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, said to them notice that he's going to do an explanation. We're going to start with verse 10, we're skipping out of verse 10. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Friends, these are the words of God. They are more precious than gold, even much fine gold. And they are sweeter than honey. Even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would be uh, with us all. Um, I pray that you'd be with my heart and all the distractions. 
room. And I pray that you would be with all of our hearts and all of the collective distractions that we carry into this room. Uh, I pray that you would still our restlessness, that you would help us to bring to your word all of who we are, our hands and our feet, our hearts, our minds, the words that are coming to mind and to lips. I pray, Father, that you would help us to hold them up to your light. I pray that you teach us what Jesus, you said, what's good about being a good shepherd, how what we can take away from this. And I pray, Father, that you would move, your spirit would fill this room, fill each and every one of us, and that we would hear and see what you have us to hear. We ask these things in Jesus' name. You can be seated next. Okay. In our passage tonight, Jesus calls himself a good shepherd, not once, but twice. We talked about this last week, we'll talk about it again, uh, about what a, good sh- what a shepherd is. But I would like to take a pause, a time out, and think about the word uh, that we use every day. The word that we're always pursuing, whether we know or not. It's the word good. Good. Okay? Good is one of those words that we use all the time without really ever thinking about it. I mean, what do we even mean when we say the word good, right? How are you? Good. How'd it go? Good. She's a good girl. He's a good guy. We say good all the time. I think if we counted the number of times we say good, it would probably be in the hundreds in just a single day. I mean, it's just automatic even when someone says hello to us. We just say good. <laughs> How are you? Good. Or they'll say, like, what are you got to? Good. Like, we just <laughs> say, <laughs> it's just sort of an automatic impulse, okay? That's why it's so helpful that in the original text, in the Greek language this was written in originally and translated from, the word for good there, the word that Jesus uses when he says, I am a good shepherd, is the word kalos. Kalos. Okay? And kalos also means beautiful. In fact, it primarily means beautiful. Uh, and really, I think the beautiful thing about the word beautiful is that it's a, it's a word that we don't ordinarily use as a filter. Okay? It's not a word that we use as a filter, it's not something that we just say without really thinking about it as much. Okay? Um, I think, like, if you think about the word beautiful, it's something that we're always longing for. Something that we're always longing for. Whether it's a sports highlight or the image reflected back to us in the mirror. Beautiful is someone we're always searching for in some way. Whether it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend or God. Let me get this idea of beauty by quoting an NMSU English professor. I recently read his book. Okay? It's called From Old Notebooks. It's named Evan Lavender Smith, a guy who's in our community. And he writes shockingly honest journal entries about everything in his life, including his lack of faith. But I want you to hear how he describes his unfiltered thoughts about litter. And it's amazing how they continuously drift into one subject over and over and over again, and a bunch of miscellaneous thoughts, he comes back to one topic over and over. Beauty. Constantly talking about beauty, over and over again. He writes this, the image of beauty that would instantly dispel this scatter all doubt. Jackson, his son, taking a bath. Carmen, his wife, putting two fingers to her lips. An empty autumn baseball field. He's a creative writing professor. The image of beauty for which I am constantly on the lookout and never able to quite resolve 
this image of beauty, a perception of beauty that can stabilize the vertigo of philosophy. Okay, so he's doing a little bit of stream of consciousness thing, so let me explain what he's doing. Clearly, Evan Lavender Smith there is understanding that beauty is important. It's got a power, a spiritual power even. Okay? And he's saying that beauty actually can change his life for the better. If only he could find something beautiful, his whole life would change. All of his doubts would be gone. All of life's dizziness would be settled into rest. Look, I know this is how that, that whole quotation is not exactly how you would phrase it, probably. Okay, you're not a creative writing professor publishing your private thoughts. Okay, and you're not writing to an audience of mostly English majors. Okay, let's be honest, and other academics. But can't you feel what Evan Lavender Smith is describing, what he's desiring? It's what we all desire. Lavender Smith is asking out loud what makes someone good. He's looking for something beyond himself, someone who is beautifully good, and he's asking what makes that someone good. Okay. And that's the question that we all actually walk around with on this campus. It's the question that we silently don't ask people that we meet, even though we want to. What makes you, what makes me, what makes anyone good? Beautiful, worth it. When your pastor tonight, Jesus is answering the question, "What makes someone good?" In John chapter ten, verses ten through eighteen, Jesus is offering an image of beauty, an image of beauty, an image of beauty that, if we see it in all of its power, will dispel all our mental doubts instantaneously. And if we see it in all of its power, it will stabilize the dizziness of our lives. It's a bold claim, but I think it's beautiful and true. In, in a sentence, let me say it this way. Verses 10 through 18, Jesus is telling us God is good. God is good because he lays down his life for us. Therefore, see Jesus' goodness on the cross and follow his voice with your life. Okay? So God is good because he lays down his life for us. Okay? Therefore, see Jesus' goodness placed on the cross and follow him, his voice, with your life, with my life. Okay? So that's sort of the takeaway. It's a big picture thing, so really wrestling with what makes God good. What does it mean when he says, I'm laying down my life and I'm a good shepherd? That's what we're going to look at. In verses 10 through 18, Jesus is explaining the story of a shepherd and sheep, and sheep in verses 1 through 6. That's why I put it in your bulletin. Just so you have a reference point, okay? In order to explain what shepherds and sheep have to do with Jesus and you and me, Jesus goes into an explanation, okay? He tells us twice, I am the good shepherd, verse 11 and verse 14. First, in verses 10 through 13, the first I am setting, that first statement setting, Jesus defines the good shepherd by what he's not. Okay? The good shepherd is not a thief. He's not a hired hand. Okay? And then secondly, in verses 14 through 18, Jesus defines or describes the good shepherd okay, by what he is. He intimately knows us to the point of death and resurrection. Okay? 
So again, verses 10 through 13 define Jesus as the good shepherd, not a hired hand, not a thief. Okay? Verses 14 through 18 describe Jesus as the good shepherd. He intimately knows each and every sheep to the point of death and new life. Okay? Let's begin with verses 10 through 13 and how Jesus tells us who he's not. Okay? Sometimes it's helpful to define yourself by what you aren't. Look at verse 10 with me. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Okay, here Jesus makes it clear that that's what a thief is. He comes to kill and steal and destroy. But Jesus, who is the good shepherd, comes to lay down his life for his sheep, for us. This is a huge contrast between the thief of verse 10 and the shepherd of verse 11. Do you see that going on? There's a kind of contrast there. The thief is out for his own good. He breaks into the sheepfold to grab sheep to kill and maybe even to eat. He wants to have some lamb chops. He wants to have a leg of lamb. That's what he's after. Okay? The shepherd, on the other hand, is out for the sheep's good. He is even willing to risk his own life to die for the sheep. And here's our spiritual problem with this text. It's very hard for us to differentiate, to tell the difference between a thief and a good shepherd. Oftentimes we struggle to what voice we listen to and whom we follow. Okay? Let me explain. Here's an illustration to explain that. Problem clear. Years ago, one time, there's a tourist group that was kind of traveling Israel, modern-day Israel. They're walking the old streets of a town, uh, listening to their tour guide talk about the, the many different historical levels in that old town when they come upon this flock of sheep being driven by a man. All the way through town, through these narrow streets, they're like clinging against the walls as these sheep, these smelly sheep, kind of charge through the, through the corridor. Okay? And they're, at the same time as they're clinging the walls, they're cooing and all, and saying, isn't this so biblical? You know, like shepherd, sheep. Oh, I feel like I'm right in the middle of the Bible. This is awesome. And they're taking lots of pictures. They're saying, I've got to catch this for the grandkids. I can't wait to show the slideshow to my neighbors. This is awesome. Okay, um, in the middle of this, sort of right at the end of the, the, the flock being driven past them, one sightseer, one tourist makes an insightful comment to the tour guide. He says, I thought that the shepherd led the sheep from the front. Why is this shepherd leading the sheep from the back? The tour guide looks puzzled at the guy for a second, at the tourist for a second, and he says this, Sir, that's not the shepherd, that's the butcher." Okay? You see, the good shepherd doesn't drive us to our death. He leads us to life. Okay? Jesus leads us to rest. He leads us to security. He leads us to freedom. A thief, whether it's a bad religious teacher, whether it's a well-meaning friend, whether it's a family member who doesn't have quite have their head on straight, or the eternal voice that constantly accuses us and tells us we're not good enough. That kind of thief drives us, drives us into exhaustion, drives us into insecurity, drives us into slavery. So how do we know whose voice we're listening to and whose voice we're to follow? First, we need to ask ourselves this question. Does guilt drive our spiritual lives? Does guilt drive our spiritual lives? Okay? Whether you're a Christian or not, are we angry when other people don't match our spiritual efforts? 
Do we get frustrated with people when they don't live the way that we live? Are we always frustrated with people who are texting at the last minute to let us down? Whether Christian or not, do we feel bitter and burned out when we fail to meet our own spiritual life plan? Do we feel like failures when we don't read or pray enough, whatever level of enough that is, personally, for each of us? Does every year begin with us promising ourselves that we're going to read the Bible in a year? And does every year end with us on the couch watching home improvement shows on cable TV? Second, we need to ask this question. What would it look like for us to be led by Jesus? Okay, so if that's not what it looks like, what's it, that looks what it looks like to be driven. What does it look like to be led? Instead of guilt driving us from behind to pray and to, and to act right, what would it look like for Jesus to lead us from before us with a promise of joy set before us? What would that look like motivationally? We don't read the Bible or pray or serve people, other people, because we have to do it. We pray, we read the Bible, we serve other people because we get to do it. Abundant life, green pasture, is, is in the trial, is in the relationship, is in the beauty of being with God. Okay? So prayer and reading the scripture is what it means to be with God. That's the joy set before us. Serving other people is what it means to really truly relate to someone. On a human-to-human, intimate level. And when we fail to say no in our lives to get another extracurricular activity that someone asks us to do, or we fail to say yes to anything, including school, that demands any of our time, no matter where you are in that, when we fail, which we will fail, being led by Jesus looks like believing that in Jesus Christ, God is not disappointed in you. He cannot be disappointed in you in Jesus Christ. He can only be disappointed for you. He can only be disappointed for the things that you're missing out on, that he lays before you, the joy set before us. Jesus laid down his life so that our failures to follow him would not be the last word. They would not be the last word of our lives. He laid out his life to forgive us. And he picked his life back up again so that we could actually enjoy being with God. That's the promised transformation. That heaven won't just be shackling your feet and being bored with praise and worship. That when we get to heaven, we'll be so transformed, so transfixed, that there won't have to be an ice cream Sunday bar. That God will be enough. But more on that later. In addition to saying he's not a thief and a butcher, Jesus is also telling us he's not a hired hand in verses 12 and 13. A shepherd owns, a shepherd knows, a shepherd loves the sheep for their own sake, for each and every sheep's sake. A hired hand is a shrewd businessman that's only out for his own profits. He takes care of the sheep to make money, to save money, to pay the bills. Do you see the difference? So when a wolf comes, there's a choice for the shepherd and for the, and for the, and for the hired hand. There's a choice between the sheep's lives or his own life. And the hired hand chooses to save his life, 
not to lose it. Whereas the good shepherd, the shepherd chooses to lose his life and save the lambs and the sheep's lives. At the end of the day, the hired parent is always doing a cost and benefit analysis. Okay? He's running the numbers. He's saying losing his life is too big of a cost and, and for too little of a benefit of other people's lives. Let me illustrate this for a second. A few years ago, my parents traveled to New Zealand. I don't know why. I, they weren't on some sort of like Lord of the Rings pilgrimage, I don't think. It's like, oh, there's from the Hobbit lips. You know, that's not what was going on. I don't think. Um, anyway, we were talking about this family vacation one day. Um, and thankfully, there weren't slides involved. But we were talking about the family vacation. They had this really wonderful conversation with a shepherd there. I guess shepherd is, a, is for lack of a better term. He was actually sort of, sort of like an entrepreneur. He ran the largest wool-producing uh, outfit in all of the world. Uh, and, and, and particularly in New Zealand. And so he was one of the top producers for a certain kind of wool that was a very fine uh, wool sweater that almost every fine store purchases and sells, okay? And so he was telling him, my parents about how the business works. They, my parents had some questions. They're older. They have lots of questions. And so <laughs> this guy was kind of indulging them, okay? He told my parents that if a sheep strayed from the flock, he just let it go. Okay? He said it just wasn't worth it to chase it after, chase after it. Am I going to sit there and risk all this stuff here for that one guy? Just let him go. And guess what happened if he came back? Would he rejoice? No. He killed the sheep that came back. Do you know why? He did not want stupidity and rebellion to breed into his sheep so that the rest of them would wander away. <laughs> True story. That's why he's the most successful business in New Zealand. Okay? At the end of the day, he credited his policy with making his operation more productive, more efficient, and giving him a good bottom line. In other words, not chasing after the sheep, killing the ones that did wander away from the flock, just made good business sense. It was just good math. Do you realize, by contrast, what kind of shepherd Jesus is? Do you realize that his scheduling plan, or shepherding plan, I should say, the gospel, the gospel is bad business. The gospel is bad math. Okay? Think about Luke 15, the parable that Jesus tells there in chapter 15. He tells us that a good shepherd does not abandon his sheep who run away from him. He leaves the 99 sheep and he chases after the one who strays. And a good shepherd, Jesus, doesn't kill the sheep he tracks down and brings back. He throws a great, big, heavenly party for that sheep, that stupid, rebellious sheep. Our good shepherd is wondrously inefficient. He doesn't give a rip about his bottom line and his productivity rating. And thank God, because every one of us in this room and on this planet have run away from him at one time or another. Every one of us has run in rebellion and strayed away in stupidity. Even now, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, know this, God is not your boss man. 
He's not crunching the numbers in heaven and wondering if you or I are worth the effort. Whether we merit the price of Jesus' eternal blood. He's not just going to let us run and hide when Christianity feels tough. He is pursuing us with everything he has at his disposal. No matter how poorly we pray, no matter how poorly we read our Bible, no matter how poorly we help other people, he is not calculating your spiritual output with a frown or a shrug. No, God the Father is telling the angels to buy a sheet cake, to load the confetti cannon, and to throw us a huge heavenly parade for that one person, each and every one of us who chooses to follow him in our rebellion, in our stupidity, who chooses to be scooped up by him and not to bite him too many times. We get a parade. So Jesus is not a thief who drives us to our deaths. He's not a hired hand who cares most about his bottom line. What is Jesus? What does it mean that he's a good shepherd that lays out his life for, for us, for sheep? Verse 14 tells us that Jesus knows his sheep and we know him. First, this, is, this knowing is intimate and personal. It's deep, deep water. Okay? Because it's a reference to the way that Jesus knows every one of us who believe in him. He knows us with a thoroughness and passion that should make us blush. He knows us in our stupidity and our rebellion. He knows us in our dignity and our compassion. He knew us in the womb. He knew us in kindergarten. And he'll know us in retirement. Second, Verse 15 tells us that knowing is not a one-way street. It's mutual. It's a mutual knowing. Just like the Father knows Jesus, and Jesus knows the Father, so by faith we grow to know Jesus to the exact same level that he knows us. But I hope this doesn't lead us to think of the Christian life as one big make-out session in the corner somewhere. Okay? This intimate, mutual knowing is not just singular. It's not between two people, me and Jesus. Everyone else back off. He's mine. Okay? <laughs> it's plural. It's plural. It's between many. It's between me and you and many, many other people and Jesus. So, third, Jesus knowing us and us knowing Jesus is why. Okay? So it's deep, it's mutual, and it's wide. Verse 16 tells us that Jesus has many, many, many sheep from all over the world. That each one of us, these many sheep, have only one good shepherd, and each other one flock. That is one church universal. According to verses 17 and 18, the proof the proof that Jesus knows us this way, that he knows us deeply and widely and mutually, okay, is in his life, death, and resurrection. God became a man. And I think this is very complicated what I'm trying to say. He joined his divine nature to a human nature in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, a real historical person that walked, 
crowded streets in Israel that sheep ran down. Okay? And Jesus, God, was well acquainted with our everyday life, with our trials and our delights. And this God, man, laid down his life for his sheep on the cross. And he died. He gave his life to protect the sheep, those who trust in his protection. To protect us from the wickedness outside, what scripture calls wolves, okay? But also to protect us from the wolf inside of us all. At times of hurt and anger and envy and pride. And finally, after Jesus dies on the cross and is buried in a rich man's tomb, he rises from the dead. He takes up his life again, is how John puts it in chapter 10. He takes up his life again. As if it was just that easy. And this is the moment where Jesus, in all his divinity, could have dumped his human part. Do you realize that? He could have just said, ah, oh, this literal dead weight of humanity, this body, ah, come on. Like, I've conquered the grave, why do I need that anymore? He could have dusted his hands off and said, that's it with humanity, done with you. But instead, Jesus' divinity raises his humanity from the dead. And what does he do with his humanity? Does he tuck it away in some heavenly closet? No, he perfects it. He glorifies it. Do you see how that's a promise for us? If we believe he can, Jesus will not leave us to die in our graves. But Jesus, the good shepherd, will raise us from the dead. And you know what he'll do with us? He'll perfect us. And it makes sense that eternal life for humanity would prove itself out. That it would prove out that Jesus is the good shepherd and how he's the good shepherd. Okay? It proves out Jesus' goodness. Our hearts cry for a good, for a beauty that never, ever, ever ends. <laughs> Listen to the way that Evan Lavender Smith, that NMSU professor, puts it in his journals. Again, he's not he's struggling with faith. Okay? He says it this way. We continue to insist on the possibility of an afterlife because we cannot help but insist on the value of beauty. We continue to insist on the possibility of an afterlife because we cannot help but insist on the value of beauty. In other words, what makes beauty beautiful? It's eternity. What makes goodness good? It's eternality. Let me put it another way. Beauty can't die or it's ugly. Goodness must be eternal or it's bad. An undying beauty and eternal good can only come from the undying and eternal source. God. Okay, I really think I lost about half of you there. It's okay. Um, we were talking about beauty and goodness, and I think maybe even before that we were talking about human nature, divine nature, and resurrection, and death. Some of that stuff's heavy treading, heavy water. Um, it's worth wrestling with, John's wrestling with it. Uh, but I'd really like us to end with a story that I think ties it together. It's about a pastor named Joe Novitson who remembers the goodness of Jesus. How does he do that? What's his practice that he does in his life to remember the goodness of Jesus? Very practical. Here's how he holds Jesus dearly and personally. Joe remembers his wife. Okay. Again, this isn't some subtle plug for all you get married. Okay? Joe 
two months after he was married, just two months, his hands got caught and crushed in an industrial accident, flattened by pancakes between two industrial-sized rollers. The pain of that moment was physical agony. The shame of the spiritual aftermath was even more agonizing. For an entire year, Joe Novenson had to hold his hands up above his heart level for circulation reasons. Imagine a whole year of holding your hands up above your heart. In the hospital, after rounds and rounds of surgery, the doctors gave him, Joe, and his wife, Barb, a choice. Joe could stay in traction, that is, in a hospital bed with his arms raised above his head, for a whole year, or he could go home. And they could do it themselves. He could lift his hands above his heart at all times, not, not even for a moment dropping, not even when he went to sleep. Okay? He had that choice. And he and his wife chose to go home. Okay? At home for a year. And remember, they just got married. Two months earlier, they were married. Okay? This is an amazing story, a true story. 1975. Okay? Two, two months after they married. They barely knew each other. They barely knew each other. And Barb, Joe's wife, would build an igloo of pillows on Joe's chest. Okay? And he would place his hands wrapped up the size of rugby balls with bandages on top of those pillows and sleep on his back. Before he drifted off from his sleep, Barb, his wife, would crawl around the pillows and kiss him goodnight. Every night for 365 nights. But understand, Joe's hands were wrapped like this, so he couldn't do anything. He couldn't brush his teeth. He couldn't bathe himself. He couldn't feed himself. He couldn't even go to the bathroom by himself. And that was the hardest thing for Joe, that he couldn't go to the bathroom by himself. That he couldn't, that he had to face the shame and disgrace of being helped by his newly married wife. Imagine those scenes in the bathroom for a second. Exchanging toilet paper, gingerly bending over in a small space. But the hardest thing about Joe not being able to do anything was he said the hardest thing was going to the bathroom in public. In public restrooms. Can you imagine this? Imagine the shame and disgrace here. Joe having to do the whole process that he had to go through. He had to push open the men's room door to see if the coast was clear and anyone was in there. Then he had to invite his wife Barb to come into the bathroom with him, into a stall. Okay? And she had asked somebody, some random stranger who was shopping, to keep guard outside of the bathroom. Okay? To watch so that no one else entered. And Joe remembers every time he used the public bathroom, the public restroom that first year, he remembers how terribly ashamed and terribly helpless he felt. But he also remembers that his wife, at the end of them going to the bathroom, together, because that's what it was, would kiss him on the lips and would say, I love you. She did that to take away his shame, to take away his disgrace, and to wipe away his tears. We get a picture here in this passage of 
bunch of times. But this picture, if we see it aright, makes Barb Novenson's sacrificial, sacrificial love for her husband pale, pale in comparison. It's an image, if we have eyes to see it, it's an image of beauty that scatters, dispels all doubts. It's an image of beauty that stabilizes life's dizziness. It's a picture of Jesus the shepherd carrying a sheep slung around his shoulders. He's picked us up again. He's picked us up maybe tonight for the first time. You know what he's doing? He's smiling. He's smiling. I don't think you believe it. I think you think he's shrugging or frowning. He's smiling. Do you know what his mouth is saying? Do you know what his shoulders are saying? Do you know what his life is saying? Do you know what his death is saying? Three words. I love you. Father, uh, this is a beautiful passage, and I pray that um, we would know what it's like that your love exceeds the love of a wife willing to go into a men's restroom. I pray that we would know what it's like to know that your love chases us into the crevices that we hide in, that we don't even know we're hiding in. I pray that we would know what it's like that the shepherd is good and beautiful and true, and what it looks like for us in our lives to hang limply on his shoulders and bask in his smile. I pray, Father, that you would show us what it looks like to be led and not driven. To not calculate the bottom line of God for him, but to rejoice in the angels rejoicing over us. I pray, Father, for whoever we are, whoever we are, that this message would penetrate our hearts and that we would know that Jesus, the shepherd, who's wounded for a sheep. Ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, Sarah, this one more time.